Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Caswell Barry, and this month we've got something a bit different for you. So rather than our normal studio guests, we've just finished the UCL Neuroscience Symposium 2022. Myself and Selena Ray, one of our co-hosts, were on the ground there getting interviews with speakers before and after they'd been on stage. Um, the reason Steve Fleming wasn't in the recordings because he was one of the speakers at uh, the Neuroscience Symposium, so we've got interviews with him. So sit back and listen and enjoy. Okay, so this is Caswell Barry from um, Brain Stories, and I'm here with Jonathan Schott, who of course is organising, is the, uh, the head of the um, committee organising the Neuroscience Symposium this year. And we're off to a fantastic start. We've just had the first session. Uh, Jonathan, you said a bunch of interesting things in your introduction about um, the importance of um, science and neuroscience in particular, taking account of environmental changes. And also I can see in the sort of lineup of speakers you've got, you've um, been very aware of sort of gender balances. I wonder if you've got anything to say about those things or anything else you'd like to add. Yeah, well, it's a real privilege to be asked to uh, to chair the symposium committee this time round, and really privileged, particularly at UCL, because there's just such a wealth of talent available. Um, and I come from the very translational aspects from from neuroscience. I'm interested in in dementia, and I'm interested in diagnostics and treatments. And so it's really eye-opening to me to go and see uh, some of the more fundamental science, some of the systems-based research. And what we really wanted to do when we're putting this symposium together is to try and get that real breadth uh, and really to link together the, 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 the fundamental cellular, star, uh, cellular uh, work that goes on and see how this translates through um, I- into real prospects um, for, uh, for the future, for treatments, for patients uh, and, uh, and for society more generally. And I think um, it, it, what we learned during uh, the pandemic is the importance of collaboration, of bringing people together. <laughs> Um, and that's something I think that we've really, really missed. So I think this symposium has particular import, particularly at this, at this time to try and bring us all together. And in terms of your question about the, the environmental aspects, I think that, um, again, during lockdown, um, with what's going on with climate change, um, this is, uh, we, we've learned that we, we can do things uh, remotely um, and trying to balance that in-person experience with, the, with what's going on and what we can do using new technologies is, is complicated. Um, but the, you know, clearly doing things correctly and well for the environment is absolutely uh, vital. And so the fact that we can do things in-house is great. Um, but as we'll hear later on from other talks, as the neuroscience community, we also need to think about the impact, not just of travel, but on our freezer storage, on our MRI scans, and think how we can do our, do our bit, that whilst we all want to do good, um, we also need to think about the, the, the negative impacts that we can have and how we can mitigate against those. That's fantastic. I'll let you go and get some coffee. Thank, Thank you very you so much. much. Thanks a lot. Okay, I'm here with Steve Fleming, who is both our Brain Stories co-presenter <laughs> and is waiting to go on stage, well, after the break. To give uh, to give his presentation, Steve, just tell us how you're feeling. This is great. We're back in we're back in person, and we're you're playing in, dual roles. Absolutely, here. we're back in person. I feel like I'm just getting you know my name on the podcast without <laughs> actually having to go around with the roving mic. So thanks for you know doing this. It's me embarrassing um, myself here, <laughs> looking like some craven journalist. No, it's great. It's um it's really nice. I feel like there's a good energy in the room. Everyone together again after all this time. We mm. saw some fantastic talks this morning. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I feel yeah, slightly intimidated about going after the break. 
right now. I've got to say, we've come out of the starting gates pretty damn fast. The standard is very high. Sort of these, as I was just talking to Jonathan, like saying, you know, you've got these fantastic basic science, but translating all the way across to sort of um, anxiety, potentially anxiety disorders, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. How do you compete with that? Well, no, it's, <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, I'm going to be talking about work on humans and yeah. we can't get into the brain mm. the same way you can in animal models. But we hope we can add, I guess, something on higher cognition. That's what I'm going to be, I'm going to be talking about, self-awareness and metacognition. But no, I'm really excited about the opportunity to bridge down to animal models as well. So that's why these events are really nice yeah. to be able to see the whole spectrum yeah. of UCL neuroscience. Very nice. Right, I'm going to, I'm going to get you afterwards right. and see whether you say the same things. <laughs> okay. okay, so I'm here with uh, Sonia Hoffer, who was one of the speakers in the first session, and uh, told us this really super exciting story about how... Uh, Ventral LGN inhibits escape responses in a in this awesome um, mouse model of escape. Um, did I get that right? What have I what have I missed? <laughs> I mean, we think it's having these inhibitory circuits are having a bit more of a, a more general effect on kind of fear responses, anxiety-like behavior in mice, and kind of help the mice to balance its need to stay safe from predators, but also to venture out into the world and uh, find foods and mates and so on. Right, so it's much more, much more sort of general purpose than I just made it look. And also there's this sort of really interesting point that someone picked up in the questions, I think, that you, you touched on, that it seems to be about um, interacting with visual stimuli in particular, which just seems so interesting. Like, do you think, and I think someone asked you in the questions, oh, uh, you know, why not auditory? Like, fear comes in, you know, fear, like, dangerous situations are multimodal. Do you think there's another equivalent circuit somewhere else that deals with different modalities, or do you think it's sort of slightly, uh, sort of somehow interlocked with this one? I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for prey animals, this is one of the essential things, right, to stay safe from predators. So there's multiple uh, parallel systems. So one is, of course, the amygdala, um, which I haven't mentioned in my talk which is kind of a parallel system. And then there's also the basal ganglia, which are also have been shown to kind of be important for, could, which could also regulate these instinctive behaviors by cortical input. Um, so I think this is just one pathway that is particularly important for kind of visual uh, threat and um, maybe in a kind of bright environment uh, that is aversive. But certainly, yeah, there's lots of, of, of kind of pathways working together to regulate these fear responses because it's just so essential for the animal to stay safe and not be eaten. <laughs> cool. And um, final question, I promise. Uh, what's it like to be back at... This is the first uh, UCL Neuroscience Symposium for three years? Two, three years, probably. What's it like to be uh, back in the beating heart of UCL? It's amazing, I have to say, because I really haven't seen people at the main campus and at the different institutes for, for a long time. So this is a great opportunity to catch up with people and see all the amazing research. So yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Cool, awesome. Thank you very much, Sonia. Thank you. Okay, so I've just cornered Katharina Schmack, who was the first speaker, um, gave us this really awesome uh, introduction overview of um, model of hallucination in mice that scales to humans and is just basically fantastic, basic plus translational research. Um, could you, I'm gonna give you a challenge here, in like about three sentences, just try and summarize what happened. Because I don't think I can manage it. It was so, you're, it was so dense and so cool. Yeah, thanks, um, of course. So 
Um, one challenge in the study of psychosis is that psychosis is really difficult to measure, especially in animal models, and that makes it very difficult to study the biology of psychosis. So we developed a new method that uses behavioral tasks and computational models to measure the processes that are associated with hallucination, with hallucinations or hallucination-like perception. Um, and we could can do we can use this method both in humans where we can actually show that it correlates with hallucinations and we can use this methods in mice where we can then look in the, the neural circuits and what we found is that too much dopamine in the striatum predicts these hallucination-like perceptions and uh, therefore explains why mice have perceptions when there's nothing about to explain them. That's amazing. So there's a question that actually I wanted to ask, but there were like too many questions in the, in the lecture theater at the time. So how do you square this role of dopamine in sort of regulating, what, in, like as you explained, it's sort of a balance between um, your, well, in a Bayesian model, like your priors about whether you're about to experience the stimulus and, or whether you've perceived any information coming in. How do you square that with like the, the sort of reinforcement learning view of the world where dopamine is all about reward prediction errors? Is there a link or is it just dopamine doing yet another interesting thing? I do think that there is a link between these two different kinds of uh, predictions. Um, I think, in general, we are dopamine is concerned with predicting um, future outcomes. Um, and they can be more directly related to reward and they can be more perceptual in nature. Um, so I think these two functions are compatible. They are slightly different, but they are kind of compatible. They're just important in different contexts. Um, and yeah, I think that basically in our case, we found that dopamine was more important for these, or was important for both of these predictions, but we found in the case of hallucinations, it, actually what we found was that dopamine en encoded these more perceptual expectations and thereby led to the, the animals um, and presumably also the humans to perceive things that they were merely expecting, but that were not really triggered by an external stimulus. That's so cool. It's a really awesome talk, by the way. And I've heard a lot of people sort of saying how, how really great it was both to be here and have live science, but also it was great that you started. So thank you very much. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm enjoying the symposium a lot. A first in-person symposium after a long time. So That's I'm having fun. Cool. Thank you. I've managed to corner the early career prize winners, both the junior and the senior, um, whose names I'm going to mangle. So what I'm going to do is get you to say your names so that I don't mess this up. So I'm going to the junior career prize winner first. Hi, okay. Hi, Caswell. I'm Candela Sanchez-Bellot. Fantastic. Great to meet you. And the senior? Hi, I'm Stéphane Bijon. Nice to meet you. Fantastic. Very good to meet you both. So we just saw two really awesome talks, basically. One about uh, the distribution of connections from the ventral hippocampus and the other about um, a really cool technique using copperfish uh, in conjunction with two photon imaging to basically pin down the, the genetic background of, a sing of single neurons you might record. And I'm just like basically wowed by the standard of the talk today, but specifically from both of yours. Um, I'm going to start over here with hippocampal axis because I know a lot more about that. Um, so, and in fact, I want to pick up on a really interesting question that came up during uh, the questions for your talk, which was, how general do you think this is? So, um, first of all, if I could get you in like 20 seconds, just to give us the sort of potted overview of what you were talking about. Okay, so the 20-second overview of my paper is that there's a pathway that connects the ventropocampus to the prefrontal cortex, and it's been ascribed with very opposing functions in terms of anxiety-like behavior during expiration, and I found that this is supported by parallel circuits, where the ventropocampus actually sends two 
two separate pathways to the PFC, and that's how it manages to do that. Right, cool. Okay, that's super clear. And so how general do you think this is? Like, so this was a really interesting, like, so uh, Mattia Carandini asked this question. Um, how general do you think this sort of circuit is, where you've got basically two outputs to the hippocampus, one inhibiting and one exciting a particular um, behaviour? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think actually his question made me think about that a lot, and I think it's probably more general than we think, but I think I got really lucky with this projection because it anatomically separates. So when you cut slices of the hippocampus, you it's just so obvious that there are two layers, and then you go and investigate why there's two layers. And with so many other projections, that's not going to be the case. I haven't seen it with any of the other ones I've checked. Um, but papers that have come out since I've done this project have shown that, they, um, for example, the amygdala projects to the ventral hippocampus, and different nuclei in the amygdala project to the superficial and deep layer and then actually promote this approach and avoid. And so I think it's actually super generalized, but it's just because it was so visually obvious that I, I've followed that lead. And I think that is probably a good lead to follow on. If you're studying a behavior that, as I answered during the talk, that can actually go bi-directionally where you can either approach or avoid or um, flee or approach a threat or so many other types of behaviors that go both ways. I think, yeah, it's probably a lot more general than we think but probably harder to pinpoint than with this pathway. Okay, super interesting. And I guess the, the other, other question I'm going to ask you, purely because I'm a hippocampologist, but have spent most of my career looking at the dorsal hippocampus, and there's this huge ongoing debate about, like, you know, you ask spatial hippocampal people, they're like, oh, it's all space, it's just bigger scale space, whereas you ask much of the rest of the world, and they're like, it's really not. Um, any views on that dichotomy? Well, I've gone to the dark side now. I work on dorsal hippocampus. Um, don't, don't tell Andrew. Um, but... I think we were talking about this in the lab because we're based at UCL and everyone here is very space-oriented. I think you can still think of the hippocampus as something that's trying to interpret the world you live in and even emotions and emotional processes can be seen as in space. So you might be in an anxious state, which is one sort of mental space, and then you can change into a different state, which might be a um, relaxed state or a, a thoughtful phase where you're trying to encode memories. And I think that's still a sort of space, but the code that cells will have might just not be as visually pleasing as place cells but I do think that it's still going to be separate states um, and if you if, that, if you see that as space then we, you know it might be more or less on the same page but I do think it just gets so messy eventually where even the layers really spread out and it's I think maybe a younger field that needs more more investigation I can't disagree I can't disagree um so Switching now seamlessly to, to copperfish combined with two-photon imaging or just optical imaging. Um, how hard, this, this seems like a conjunction of two pretty hard things. Yeah. Uh, how hard was this to do? I'm curious. So, I mean, when I arrived in the lab, like they were struggling with it like for about two years. You okay. <laughs> were brave. Um, and uh, then, uh, but, but it, the, the tools were there basically. They had developed the copperfish method roughly, like most of it. So they, we could already detect many genes at the same time on the same section. So that was kind of already there. But my main job was really to combine it with 2P and 2-photon imaging. Uh, and this was kind of hard. Uh, it took me like a year and a half to figure out the proper condition, the proper mouse line that we had to use to make it work. Um, but then it was at the end, like it was pretty like working pretty like routinely at the end. So it was it was not that hard. It's like it's but it has like a 40 percent efficiency. So basically, we recover only 40 uh, percent of the cells that we actually recall. That seems pretty high. I mean, the thing that sort of blows me away is like you know we. Even trying to find, so we do two photos of image across days. Even trying to find the same bloody cells is like yeah. relatively challenging. Doing that, but 
one of the one of the techniques, well, two different techniques. One of them being in slices just seems kind of mind blowing. And so I'm... The, the, the key the key thing is actually sparse tests of labeling. So if you want to do it with dense labeling, yeah, it's 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 horrible, and that's what actually what they were trying before when I arrived in the lab. Mm. Uh, but using this GetM Sherry mouse line, so it only labels the inhibitory cells, and they are perfect because they are really like spread out and scattered in the cortex. And so they make this beautiful point cloud of cell that you can then use to align to the section. And because they are sparse, you, can, you also have some margin of error to compensate for the warping of the slice, uh, which, which is important. And a lot, a lot of patience. And, yeah, I mean, so it, yeah, it's, it, is, it is a bit uh, tricky, but so as I was saying at the, at, the, at the end, we can now do it with like uh, vibratome sections which are fixed and this changes everything because the warping is much smaller. Mm -hmm. So it should be like almost fully automated. Right now I was aligning cell by cell my hand, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both so much. You heard them here first. These are the, these are our prize winners, the, uh, the, the PIs of the future. So this was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk thank to me. Thank you. Bye. Okay, I've cornered Steve Fleming again after he's been on stage and given us an awesome talk actually, Steve. I really like your stuff. Oh, uh, no, thank you for that. No, that was, it was lots of fun. I really thought there was a lot of energy in the room. I was then followed by these incredibly accomplished young prize winners. <laughs> who, who were better than you? Let's, <laughs> they were let's see. <laughs> much better than me and younger than me. It just made me feel, you know, like I just about managed to make the bar. But this may be my last year. <laughs> <laughs> I love that we're basically doing a post-mortem. You know, you know, there are a few fumbles, but you got no, no. Yeah, yeah, it was exactly. really, it's really cool stuff. Thank like, um, and so in fact, what I should let you do first is give us like the 20 second overview of like what you said about this um essentially sort of trying to understand some of the the basis of i guess i'd call it um confirmation bias but I'll, I'll, you said in your own words yeah so what we were broadly interested in is how people form confidence in their beliefs about their skills abilities and we know from a lot of work that that tends to dissociate from performance so you can have be overconfident underconfident um, and we now have simple tasks we can get you to do in the lab where we can precisely quantify how your confidence tracks your performance. And what we were doing in our newer work was asking, does that then have consequences for how you respond to new information that comes in? And what we find in a nutshell is that the better you are able to form that confidence, the better it is aligned to your performance, the more open you are to corrective information whereas if you're the kind of person who is highly confident and wrong about something that will lead you to stop thinking you just think you've got the answer right and you don't continue to be open to new information and so we can study that both at a neural level but then we also are interested in looking at how that predicts variance in um, more real world beliefs and the way we did that was looking at variance in political attitudes. Yeah, so I thought it was, so it's, it's really interesting. It wasn't, your talk didn't go where I thought it was going to go. When you started talking, I just thought, oh, I'm going to like play Bayesian bingo here. Right. I, I thought at some point he's going to like tell us I that the brain, you did say, you did say, <laughs> mention a Bayesian network, but actually the point was it actually, uh, the brain wasn't Bayesian. This was the thing that really threw me. So if I understand correctly, mm. you looked at some nice results from, um, you'd done what you said and you'd scan people in the um, MEG scanner if you can call that a scanner, I'm never yeah, sure. Um, and then you've done a support vector machine um, analysis of like basically gauging their, their confidence. And so the people who weren't confident 
were taking on board new information in both directions, which basically fits the sort of a roughly Bayesian view. Whereas the ones who are confident were only absorbing information that supported their existing view. And this is just really, it's quite hard to understand. Like I was, and I was doubly intrigued at the end, you mentioned um, some work from Hakwan Lao, mm. trained a network mm. uh, to basically recognize MNIST. So this is the, um, the catalog of num uh, handwritten numbers, but also gauge confidence. And apparently that was also giving similar type effects. Could you, could you, what do you make of that? I mean, is, is this a really simple effect that just comes out of any network and that's the basis of this kind of weird and quite problematic bias in human reasoning? Or, or, or what do you think? Yeah, so I, I think it's um, in the context of that simple task that we use, which was basically asking people to decide whether some dots were going to the left or to the right. It does seem anti-Bayesian. It seems irrational to not be open to corrective information there. And yet, what we're seeing from the work from people like Hakwan and others is that if you consider the wider context, like if you effectively consider the brain as a big network that's been trained on a higher dimensional, more complex real world environment, then things that look kind of un-Bayesian from a narrow view of the world might actually start to become adaptive because what that network is doing in Hackman study is effectively picking up on cues that um, overall should predict confidence in a more naturalistic setting like this how bright the stimulus is or you know how um, less noisy it is for instance but in that particular task they give it it doesn't track probability correct anymore and I think that's probably what's going on in a lot of the human studies we've done but that's only a, quite a recent rethinking because it used to be thought that all these confidence biases were due to the fact the brain was limited and that we were biased and noisy and that we just weren't very good at doing this kind of thing um, but I think it's quite exciting to think that actually it might be doing something very optimal but it's just constrained by the kind of tasks that we give it so I really like that explanation you just gave there the particular thing you said about it might be picking up on other factors that typically co-vary with um, confidence because mm. that slightly ties into a question that I think S.C. Vidding asked mm. I can't can't remember quite who asked the question but sort of basically gauging what it is about you know the confident bullshit in the world why people what it is they're doing that makes them believable and, and presume the argument is it might simply be something about like the tone and the manner of the delivery which normally goes with confidence if you just affect that yes. then other people and possibly even yourself start to believe start to believe the the, the shit, I guess. Yes, yes. No, exactly. And I think that, and there has been work done showing that prosody, tone of voice, like there's a lot, there are a lot of cues to confidence that we naturally pick up. And I think that it, it does make sense that even though it's frustrating, people who are maybe confident bullshitters do tend to be liked better and yeah. sometimes respected better and so on. And in a sense, it... You can make sense of that if, if we're looking for cues to competence. It might be hard to, especially when you meet someone for them the first time or you just hear a few statements by them, you're looking for those cues to confidence that generally have worked for you in other settings, but it just happens to be that individual has a big discrepancy between their confidence level and their actual skill or ability in that domain, and yet you just take, take that as a useful cue. Um, so I think that that can start to get really interesting in social contexts where people are interacting, like who are the kind of people who are going to lead the country? Perhaps it's going to be someone who can project confidence, but not necessarily skill in a particular area. 
How fascinating. I think we're, we're desperate for you to find a way to sort those people out because they need, they need to go somewhere else. Um, Steve, thank you so much. This was awesome and it's great to have you on the other side of the microphone. Well, yeah. Well, hopefully I might be, you know, taking... I'll be going back to your side this afternoon, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm really excited to be joined by Professor Manju Kurian, who's based over at the Institute of Child Health and is one of our speakers in the afternoon session today. So welcome, Manju. Thanks for stopping for a chat. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your lab works on? Yeah, so our lab really works on very translational neuroscience. We're really focused um, by the children that we see in our clinic with movement disorders and uh, bringing uh, them to a diagnosis, allowing that diagnosis to help us understand disease mechanisms and then using those disease mechanisms to help us develop novel therapeutics for them. So it's the whole journey from bench to bedside, uh, you know, kind of campus to clinic idea. It's one of the things I love being at UCL is that that journey exists under one roof and I think that's quite unique. How old are the kids who you are working with? Yeah, so we see, um, we run a, um, a quaternary movement disorder clinic at Great Ormond Street and we see anybody from being born all the way up to 18 and then even older transition patients up to about 21, 22 years of age until they transition to adult services, usually at Queen's Square. So a breadth of children with really broad, different movement disorders. So interesting. And, and today you're really talking talking about um, developing a pipeline towards personalised medicine. Can you, and I realise this is a difficult ask, but can you tell us in maybe one or two minutes a little bit about what that means? Yeah, so the starting point is definitely the patient. And uh, we see children that are suspected to have a genetic movement disorder, we have a whole genome sequencing functional pipeline to uh, figure out what their underlying, usually monogenic cause of disease is. We then try and understand that um, uh, gene and its protein effect and the effect of mutations on those proteins using a broad um, spectrum of different models. But more recently, stem cell models, two-dimensional, three-dimensional, uh, organoids, brain organoids. And then the understanding we have from that allows us to develop novel therapies, things like uh, gene therapy and and uh, RNA therapies uh, that are actually precision to the child's genetic condition. These are fantastic and I think it's, I always say the name wrong, but similar to, is it millinursing mil or the thing that was the therapy for one? Exactly. Thank you, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. Um, and how about you? What was your um, background and how did you end up working and running your group at UCL? So um, I trained as a, so I, I trained in Cambridge as a, a medical doctor and I qualified at the age of about 23, did all my training, uh, did paediatrics and specialised in paediatric neurology. But towards the end of my training, realised that I just wanted to be able to have answers for the many families that came to clinic without answers. Um, so 10, 12 years ago when I was, before my PhD, I realised that about 90% of the patients didn't have genetic answers. So did a PhD in uh, molecular genetics and found answers for families. And then from that has developed uh, the kind of the desire to understand disease mechanisms and translate them into therapies. Amazing. So the move to UCL was very much for that because the Institute of Child Health really allows that transition. To it's happen. a natural home for that work. And then my final question for you, how has it been being back in person? It's the first in real life neuroscience symposium since 2019. Fantastic. Oh, I, I mean, uh, you can't underrate how important the face-to-face -face is for many reasons, being able to kind of, as a speaker, being able to speak to a live audience, being able to see people's reactions and to feed off that when you're speaking, to be able to network with all the other wonderful UCL researchers. I had some great talks today in cognitive neuroscience, um, uh, climate change, all have been excellent really. So to have that diversity all face-to-face -face is really important. Thank you very much for stopping for a chat.
I cornered Nick before he goes on stage or up next or possibly one after next. Um, could you just give us a brief potted overview of what you're going to talk about in like 30 seconds or less? What are the highlights? Uh, the highlights are first, I'm going to make the point about what a big deal hearing loss is and how we currently don't have great solutions for dealing with it. And then I'm going to talk about new ways forward that I think have become available to us just in the past few years because of some advances on the technical side of things, both with the experiments that we can do in the lab for studying brain activity, but also with technologies for developing new sound processing algorithms based on AI and things like that. <laughs> this sounds this sounds super exciting. So it's it's both basic research, translational, but actually sort of branching off into sort of machine learning. Um, is the machine learning element relatively new part of this mix for you? Yeah, absolutely. And it's been transformative for us. I think we've been trying to understand how the auditory system works or doesn't work for many years now. And we've really constantly been coming up against a wall where the complexities that we're trying to understand were simply overmatching the tools that were available to us. But now, with AI and in particular deep learning, we have ways to approach these complexities that we didn't have before. And as I mentioned, we now have technologies for actually collecting the data sets. As you know, you need big data for these sorts of things to be useful. Um, so I think we're in a really good spot. Interesting. So, I mean, this is a sort of, I mean, obviously it's a topic that I know and love but it seems that it's really happening across the brain i mean initially i think some of the advances were focused on sort of the visual cortex but it's sort of branching out to higher order but also auditory areas what do you think the sort of um next big breakthrough is going to be as a result of these technologies that's a really good question i mean i'm hoping that it comes primarily or let's say at least um with a focus on the practical side of things i think for years we've been failing to help people with hearing loss as much as we hoped we could. So while I do hope that from a scientific perspective, these new tools will help us make some advances in our understanding, I'm really hoping that it's going to end up having practical benefits. And I'm pretty optimistic, as you'll find out during the talk. I'm looking forward to it. So one of the components of these um, podcasts when we do them under the normal circumstances, we both ask about science, which we've just done in probably two minutes. But also we sort of touch on people's journey about mm. how they how they got to where they are today. Um, if I asked you for the two highlights of your journey, um, what would you what would you tell me? Yeah, I mean, mine kind of makes sense given where I'm at and what I've talked about. I started off as an engineer and then moved into neuroscience, and now I've gradually worked my way back to engineering. Uh, and I also started off in vision. Like, as you said, that's kind of where a lot of neuroscientists um, at least start up or maybe eventually end up and then work my way toward hearing. And the whole time it's been with this... Um, excitement to think about the brain as a signal processing system and applying engineering tools toward that end. But as I said, I think really only in recent years has this perspective um, really come to fruition and I'm hoping that we'll be able to have something to show for it sometime soon. That's amazing. I'm super excited to see your talk. Great. So um, good luck and uh, looking forward to it. Thanks, Caswell. And I'm now joined by Dr. Stephanie Koch, who's been presenting in our session this afternoon. Welcome, Stephanie, and thanks for stopping by for a chat. Um, I just wondered if you could tell us in a very kind of top level way, what does your lab work on? So what I'm interested in in my lab and what my lab really focuses okay. on is so, how um, we learn to generate movements that are specific for tasks that we're trying to do. So how are you um, able to know to scratch an itch and how are you able to know that you have to withdraw from pain, for example? So that's really our main focus. In that's really fascinating. And what sort of models do you use to understand those things? 
So we, we would love to use humans, but right now, because we're interested in the circuits underlying this experience-dependent plasticity, we use transgenic mice. And this means that we can really target down into individual circuits and find the genes and um, the, the neurons involved in task recruitment. Amazing. And what specifically um, will you be sharing in the symposium today? So this is um, my first talk since I've got my position. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, but it means that really what I'm going to be doing is giving an overview of our interests, some of the approaches that we use, and some of the early data that we've managed to collect, just to give you like a taster of what the Koch Lab's like. I love that. And I love that you're giving your first talk to the home team as well and that we're back in person for it. Um, and maybe could you, moving away from the science now, can you tell us a little bit maybe about your scientific journey and how did you end up at UCL? So I actually began my, my scientific career at UCL. I did my master's and my PhD here. Back then it was the Department of Anatomy with uh, Professor Mariah Fitzgerald. And then I did my postdoc at the Salk Institute in San Diego in California. Um, after that, part of my fellowship, which was a Marie Curie, meant that I could come back to Europe. And so I came back to UCL and um, fought my hardest to be able to stay with the best neuroscientists in the world. We should put that on an advert, I think. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. If I can ask one final question before I leave you in peace. How have you found the symposium and how is it being back in person after three years apart? The symposium is always great. It's always amazing. I think this year is even better, if I dare say that, because we can be together after being apart for so long. I've really missed that um, sociability aspect, the networking, um, and I'm ready to be done with Zoom for a while. So being in person is hugely invigorating and inspiring. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so um, usually... All three of the Brain Stories presenters are here. So there's, there's me, Caswell. And me, Steve. And me, Selena. And we have cornered Trevor Smart, who's just given the sort of closing remarks at the uh, Neuroscience Symposium. And so we're going to put him on the spot now. Um, so we're going to start by sort of asking you what your general feelings about the whole thing were. Like, how do you think it went? Any highlights? Anything you really liked? I think it's just one of the best ones we've actually held. Partly because it follows two years of lockdown, so I can barely remember last year or the year before. But I think for the quality of science that we've seen today, truly staggering. I totally agree. I totally agree. There were some really sort of stellar talks in there, particularly the sort of younger presenters were just amazing. They were like absolutely uh, fantastic. I was blown away by the 65 interneurons, for example, and how to characterise those. I just sat there thinking, God, how are we going to analyse all that lot? It's true. It's true. In fact, we've we've just got a um, what's the phrase called when someone podcast bombed by none other than Kate Jeffrey, who's here. Uh, so I don't know whether you know, Kate. We're um, we have a, a the three of us have a, a podcast, Brain Stories, where we um, interview neuroscientists about their life and uh, their science. And uh, we go. We've just captured uh, Trevor and been asking him about uh, his uh, feelings about the awesome symposium we've just had. And we're going to ask you the same question, like whether, how you feel about being back at a real-life conference, UCL Neuroscience is, like, kicking again. 
Yeah, no, it's been awesome. It's been fantastic to see everybody again. It's, it's really, and the talks have been amazing, and um, the energy that's around right now is amazing as well. Talks have been quite humbling, I have to say. I've been looking at, especially the early career talks, I've been looking at them and thinking, I would never have gotten a job yeah. no, <laughs> I, yeah. back, back in the day. Like, like the talent that's around now is just amazing. Yeah. And the that, bar is set very, very high. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's super. It's made me extremely proud of it. That, that was one of the highlights, actually, the early careers talks, as you said. Staggering quality. Yeah, yeah. It's just amazing. And so it's probably a bit early to ask Trevor because you've not recovered from this one, but what do you think we should look forward to for next year's symposium? Are we going to keep it UCL? Are we going to throw it open, do you think, to external speakers again? Or just enjoy the moment now? And I should ask you this question maybe in a week or two. <laughs> That's an easy way out, but I will answer. I think we should throw it open again and bring in new people from outside. I think that's a nice focal point to get an external speaker. I think it was right to do UCL this year, our first one back being live, just in-house sort of thing. It worked really well. I think John Scott and his committee did a fantastic job. Um, but I think next year we should go back to having one or two external speakers. I think they bring something new to the, to, to, to the table. Yeah, I agree with all. Okay, so I think that's it. We're done. We're done. So I hope you enjoyed those interviews. Uh, the whole day was fantastic and we're looking forward to the next symposium in 2023. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking brain stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. Follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information. And we'll be back soon with our normal format and we'll be interviewing uh, Professor Hugo Spears. Thank you very much.